Welcome to Current Yield, Grant's Interest Rate Observer Podcast. I'm Philip Grant here with uh, Eric Whitehead at the Dials. We're coming to you live from our lower Manhattan studios. Jim is um, on his way back to the US from London currently. Uh, he'll be with us next time. So today we're going to turn the clock back to uh, last fall when we heard from wonderful speech from uh, Dan Rasmussen, uh, the founder and portfolio manager of Verdot Advisors. Last October, Dan took the stage to uh, challenge some widely held assumptions over the performance and credit composition of current day private equity. This is a topic that is most timely considering the uh, visible upheaval that we're seeing uh, right now in, uh, in stock and, and bond markets. So um, here we are. Dan, take it away. I was joking with Dan before we started, and I told him that he may indeed be a most uh, thoughtful and gifted money manager, which he is, but he is also uh, somewhat annoyingly to a professional journalist, a, a very good amateur journalist whose stuff priced at zero is compelling reading. He's, uh, he not only does what he does, but he also writes about it and thinks about it, and he is here to tell us about one of his uh, really interesting subjects, which is private equity. So, Dan? Thank you, Jim. It's an honor to be here with all of you. Markets are human phenomena shaped by human decisions, uh, and those decisions are shaped in turn by ideas and by stories. The job of us as investors, then, is a game of meta-narrative, to understand what is the prevailing narrative, what are the stories and beliefs shaping human action, and where are those beliefs wrong. We know from history that the greater the consensus the greater the chance of price overshoots and crashes. The more popular a narrative, the greater the risk of bubble. The more correlated investors' beliefs are, the greater the risk. I'm here today to talk about perhaps the greatest correlated belief of institutional and intelligent investors probably in the past 25 years. It is one small but increasingly important segment of our economy. I'm talking, of course, of private equity the most wonderful asset class ever invented. I ran a survey a few weeks ago of institutional investors, endowments, foundations, CIOs. And I first asked, what are your return expectations for private equity over the next five years? 23% said that they expected the net performance of their private equity funds to outpace the public equity markets by 4% per year. 49% said by 2 to 4%. 22% said by 0 to 2 and a courageous 6% said that public equities might perform equal to or better than private equities. So we have 94% of the most sophisticated institutional investors who believe that private equity is a miracle uh, that will magically solve all of their return problems. Uh, as the Cowper CIO said, we need private equity and we need it now. This is a truly dangerous degree of correlated beliefs. There's very little you can get any group of Americans in a room together these days and get 94% of them to agree on private equity, of course, being the exception. But I wanted to understand not just return expectations, but how well people understood the risk of private equity. So I asked another question on the survey. I said, what are your expectations for the five-year bankruptcy rate of your, the companies in your private equity portfolio? Are they equivalent to investment-grade bonds, double-B bonds, single-B bonds, triple-C bonds? You know, how do you, how do you, how do you think about it? 16% said that they thought their private equity portfolio had a credit quality equivalent to investment-grade bonds. 60% said it was equivalent to double B bonds, which yield about 4.5% today. 21% said equivalent to single B bonds. And 2% said equivalent to triple C bonds. So that's 76% who think their private equity portfolio uh, has a credit rating of double B and above versus 23% who say single B and below. So how do those two narratives 
as I think I've convincingly showed, uh, that are very high levels of agreement among institutional investors about those uh, two narratives, that private equity is uh, generally should have higher returns in public markets, and that private equity is eh, double B or above in terms of credit quality. How do those compare to uh, the realities? Uh, let's start with returns. Over the past five years, private equity has indeed outperformed the S&P 500 uh, by 1% per year. So 72% of institutional investors expect the next five years to be better for private equity than the last five years because they think it'll be 2% or a year per more. However, all of that private equity outperformance came in Q4 of 18 when the S&P 500 was down double digits and private equity was down only 1% or 2%. If you assume that that's just the marks uh, and that's not real outperformance, although it's possible that all of the operational improvements that our genius private equity operators had been planning, they decided to implement at one exact time <laughs> that happened to correlate with the market being down, which is, of course, a distinct possibility that I do not want to discount or ridicule in any way. If you back out Q4 of 18, private equity has actually lost to the S&P 500 by 1% per year over the past five years, which would put 94% of institutional investors expecting the next five years of private equity to be better than the last five years. But risk is even more interesting, because I think we never know what returns will be, but I think we can understand risk, at least in terms of credit quality, with at least a little bit of a better uh, lens. So 76% of institutional investors believe that their private equity portfolio has a credit quality of double B or above. Well, Moody's um, did a big study of private equity portfolios, and they concluded that 98% of private equity deals have a credit rating of single B or below, and only 2% have a credit quality of double B or above. And that's of the rated portions of the private equity deals, right? So I'd say about half of private equity deals are rated, the other half are unrated. The ones that are unrated tend to be smaller, riskier, and unable to get the ratings that would have allowed them to access credit on cheaper terms. So if you assume that Moody's, which you know I think that we uh, can have your own views about credit ratings agencies, but I wouldn't say that they're uh, massively pessimistic about credit quality. Uh, but uh, Moody's is telling us that 98% of private equity uh, deals are at single B or below, uh, but only 24% of institutional investors consider their private equity portfolios to be rated single B or below. So you have a massive misunderstanding of credit quality and where these private equity deals are actually being done in terms of their leverage statistics and credit quality. Hiring is tough. Uh, unemployment's at a uh, you know, 50-year low. People just don't walk in the door. But there's one place that you can go where hiring is simple, fast, and smart. A place where growing businesses connect to qualified candidates. That place is ziprecruiter.com slash grant. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job sites, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invite them to apply for your job. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. And right now, to try ZipRecruiter for free, our listeners can go to ZipRecruiter.com slash grant. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash grant. That's uh, G-R-A-N-T. So ZipRecruiter.com slash grant. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Andre Schleifer is the inventor of behavioral economics. He is the single most cited economist of all time. Andre Schleifer wrote a recent book about financial crises. And he said that there are three ingredients to a financial crisis that come up over and over again. Those three ingredients are consensus, leverage, and illiquidity. And when you have those three together, you have the ingredients for fire sales and panic. And I think it is evident today that if you looked and said, where is Schleifer's pattern most evident in financial markets today? Uh, it is without a doubt in private equity. We have consensus. 
94% of institutional investors believe that private equity is a magical return elixir. We have leverage ever rising ever, ever more. In 2006 and 2007, private equity leverage multiples rose to about five times net debt to EBITDA. Today, leverage levels on an adjusted pro forma EBITDA basis are just over six times. S&P did a study that found that adjusted EBITDA tends to overstate gap EBITDA by about 30% on average, which would put PE debt levels at about eight times net debt to EBITDA. The Federal Reserve, again, we can have our questions about their judgment, but they've said over six times net debt to EBITDA is too risky, it's too scary. Six times net debt to EBITDA is also the boundary for triple C credit. So we're seeing the average private equity deal being done probably two turns above uh, the triple C line and probably two turns above where the Fed said was too risky. And finally, we have illiquidity. Uh, we've had a doubling of private equity hold periods uh, since 2006. Um, now, asked about this uh, interesting question, as I, I have on numerous occasions, I've gotten a wonderful set of answers. Why are hold periods extending, right? Because presumably, if these assets are so good, you should be able to sell them rather easily at higher prices. And so I've been asking, you know, why are the hold periods seem to be getting longer and longer and longer? The best answer I've gotten was when you're trying to take on the amount and quality of operational change that we do at our firm, you just need more time to do that. That, I thought, was, was great. Another more uh, interesting uh, answer is that I heard a, an, a, a large private equity GP said, well, the thing I'm most proud of is that we've never lost money on an investment. It's amazing. Uh, you know, uh, I said, well, what, what percent of all the deals that you've ever done do you still own? He said, about 60%. I said, huh, that could be another reason for longer hold periods, not acknowledging losses. And now there's even, there's even two new strategies, which I really love. One is you take one portfolio company that's about to go bankrupt, and you have another portfolio company buy it, and then they create synergies together which is a wonderful method for creating value that you should look into. That's a, a, a really uh, exciting uh, opportunity. And then, of course, you can just hold on to these zombies forever, which is another uh, alternative. Or uh, my new favorite, which is you create a new fund, okay? And you say, well, you need to have a long-term perspective in private markets, right? Because the public markets investors are very, very short-term in nature. And the reason we've been winning is we have this long-duration perspective, which we've been getting longer and longer uh, in terms of whole periods as our vision for the future gets even, even uh, more compelling. Uh, but what we really need is even longer hold periods. And of course, if it's a longer hold period, you have to accept a little bit of lower return. So what we're going to do is we're going to sell from our main fund into the long-dated fund, uh, which accepts a lower IRR, so pays a higher price to buy from one fund to the other, which, of course, is the new rage among institutional investors. Again, why this is the case, I, I couldn't quite explain, but it is. So why is private equity so beloved by institutional investors? Uh, David Swenson, uh, the famed CIO of Yale, uh, recently called private equity a superior form of capitalism. What are the underlying beliefs and fact patterns which support this great private equity boom? What is the narrative? Why does David Swenson think that private equity is a superior form of capitalism? It's three things. Returns, risk, operational improvements. I'll start with returns. From 1980 to 2006, according to Cambridge Associates, private equity outperformed the S&P 500 by 6% per year net of fees. I think it's hard to argue that if you started investing in PE in 1980 and you held until 2006, you did, you did really well. But since 2006, uh, there's been according to various studies, very little alpha created. According to Cambridge Associates, its private equity has lagged the S&P by 1% over the last 10 years. A recent Oxford University study says there's been no public market equivalent alpha in private equity uh, since 2006. But regardless of how you look at it, um, prior to 2006, uh, private equity did really, really, really well. Uh, and so uh, what I think you first need to understand is when you think of what institutional investors are trying to solve for, of course, they're trying to find something that beats equities, right? Something that can drive their portfolios at a higher rate than just the public equity market. Um, and private equity, if you, you know, look at the long sweep of history, 
uh, looks like the thing that has the best chance of doing that. Uh, you look vintage year by vintage year by vintage year, um, and from 1980 to 2006, with very few exceptions, you have outperformance. Uh, and so I think it's quite logical to say, well, if it's outperformed in all these other vintage years, why would 2019 or 2020 be any different? Uh, this is clearly something we should have at least some exposure to in our portfolio, uh, maybe 5%, maybe 10%, maybe 20%. And that is, I think, the first uh, big driver of why there's been this great enthusiasm for private equity, is that it's hard to argue with that historical track record. Now, we did a big study about what uh, drove private equity returns uh, during those periods. And it's important to understand what are the quantitative characteristics of PE so you can understand why it worked for so long and why it seems to not necessarily been working of late. So there are three characteristics of private equity that are important to understand. The first is size. The average private equity deal is 180 million of equity, right? So the large end of the microcap index is 400 million. Private equity is 180 million, right? So these are microcap transactions generally. There have been only about a dozen private equity deals larger than the large end of the small cap index. So private equity is first and foremost a small to microcap exposure. Second is leverage. The average private equity deal is 65% levered on a net debt to enterprise value basis versus 10% for the Russell 2000. So massively more debt. And then third is valuations. And from 1980 to 2006, private equity was buying assets on average at about seven times EBITDA over a period when the S&P was trading at about 11. So essentially, you were able to go into private markets, buy assets cheap, and then if they got big, or if you merged them with other things so that they got big, you could sell them into the public markets at higher valuations, or you could sell them to public companies who would find that acquisition to be accretive. Today, and since 2006, that gap has closed significantly. Today, the S&P trades at 11 or 12 times EBITDA. Private equity trades at 11 to 12 times adjusted EBITDA. Again, if you incorporate the idea that that adjustments to EBITDA might not be real, private equity is actually paying higher prices today than what public equities trade at, comparable public equities trade at. Certainly small and microcap, non-indexed equities trade at, which are obviously at a big discount to where the S&P 500 trades. Um, so what you saw is that private equity worked really well for a very long period of time, primarily because they were buying small, cheap things with leverage and then rolling them into a, a market which was trading a significant premium. But as money has flooded in, really uh, starting when private equity became an asset class in 06, 07, and then really since the crisis, uh, you've seen a diminishing of those relative returns driven uh, in a large part by the increase in valuations. And value is doubly important in private equity uh, relative to public markets. Value is important in public markets, but it's more important in private markets. And it's more important because of the nature of investing with leverage. So if multiple expansion helps you in value, and if you're levered and you get multiple expansion, you get more returns, right? So it's a very good thing if you buy cheap uh, and you're levered. On the other hand, if you buy expensive and you put 65% net debt to enterprise value on the company, right, as your debt increases, uh, your uh, interest payments increase, uh, and your chance of bankruptcy increases almost linearly. So below four times EBITDA, you know, it's roughly investment grade. You know, four to six times is the you know double B, single B territory, and then below six times EBITDA. Uh, sorry, above six times net debt to EBITDA is triple C uh, territory. Um, so basically, the expensive growth private equity deals, uh, which are the vast majority of deals these days, are uh, being done with incredibly high bankruptcy risk. And so unlike the public markets, where a lot of the growth stocks are unlevered, right, they're taking on equity to buy growth, in the private markets, those growth stocks are taking on debt as part of the transaction. And so they're creating highly levered, expensive uh, microcaps uh, with very low credit quality, which is truly uh, not a path uh, to great returns. The next thing that makes uh, institutional investors uh, love private equity is, is the idea of risk. A large pension fund manager said that he calls this the phony happiness of private equity. Uh, and he actually said this in defending why they allocated to private equity, which was remarkable admission. He said, you know, it, it may be phony, but we still like it. And Q4 of 18 was a great example, right? The public markets down double digits, private equity down 1% to 2%. Who wouldn't want to go to their investment committee and say, well, we generated a massive amount of alpha this year. Uh, we beat everybody else because our private equity portfolio is so riskless. 
There's an even better example of this phenomenon, which is energy private equity funds. So from 2012 to 2016, oil prices were down 50%, energy stocks down 50%. Private equity energy funds raised in 2012 and 2013 those vintage years were actually marked above one and still are. So, you know, either energy private equity, which is essentially leveraged microcap drilling and, uh, you know, I, either somehow, again, they generated some massive amount of operational improvements or the marks are just wrong. And when asked about this, one energy private equity uh, executive who was trying to explain why his fund was marked up when the S&P 500 energy was marked down 50%, uh, he said, well, we see through the cycle in terms of our valuations. But this phony happiness is very important to endowments. Very important. Because if you look at where the money for private equity has come from for this wonderful new asset class, it has not come from public equities by and large. So the average endowed institution in 1990 had about 55% of their endowment in public equities. Today, the average institution has about 55% of their money in public equities. In 1990, they had 35% of their portfolio in bonds. Today, they have 15% in bonds. And all of that gap from 35 to 15 has gone into alternatives. First, they tried hedge funds, and now they've switched it into private equity. So if you see what these endowed institutions have done over the past 20 years is move from basically investment-grade debt into private equity. And so when you look at the volatility, the reported volatility of private equity, you'll notice that it's actually lower than corporate bonds. So the, the institutional investors are actually accurate when they're saying, well, when we look at our portfolio, it looks double B or above. Because on a volatility basis, if you look at the marks, it actually trades like that. Private equity looks like a double B or above bond because the marks are so smooth. So in terms of you know, the original thinking of someone like David Swenson, right? let's take the money out of fixed income and let's put it into equity. And gee, if we can mark that equity like bonds, you know, everybody's a winner. But the danger of this, uh, this smoothness, this phony happiness, uh, is that you have very little negative feedback, like that private equity manager I talked about who'd never lost money on an investment. If you've never lost money on investment, if you get no negative feedback ever, if your prices of your deals only ever go up, how do you learn? How do you know what's too risky? How do you learn what not to do uh, next time? Uh, how do the GPs know? Uh, how do you, uh, if you feel no pain when you do bad things, aren't you going to do more bad things? It's just human logic. And even more frightening is the proliferation of private equity funds. There are about 50 times more private equity funds today than there were 15 years ago. And the lending has shifted from the banks again, say what you will about the banks, they'd been around a while, and the people running their credit risk departments were old, to private lenders and business development corporations, many of which are run by people who have never seen a cycle. They have no institutional history, and it's not a repeat game. Private lender goes bankrupt, you move to a new one, and you know, you know who, who cares, right? It's not, it's not a big, big franchise. Um, and so if you think uh, the uh, LPs are bad, uh, with 76% of them thinking that their single B and triple C portfolio has a credit quality of double B or above, the GPs are just as bad, if not worse. Um, they see uh, no uh, great risk uh, to their portfolio. Uh, in fact, I, I talked to one of them and I said, well, are you seeing any credit issues in your portfolio? Uh, and he said, absolutely not. You know, we have no covenants, nothing's due. You know, it's all fine. But we are seeing liquidity issues. I said, well, what's a liquidity issue? And he said, well, you know, uh, we have this situation, you know, just the nature of things where, you know, let's say you have 100 million of cash from operations. You're buying a company, it's 100 million of cash from operations, which is 125 million or so of EBITDA. And to the banks, you tell them on an adjusted basis, it's 150 million of EBITDA. Uh, and it's growing next year to 175 because of, uh, that's what we're underwriting in our deal model. And they, so they give you the leverage, right? And, and you've got a whole, whole bunch of debt uh, based on that uh, number. Uh, and then year one comes around and, and, you know, you might have 160 million or something of adjusted EBITDA, but you might have only like 95 million of cash from operations. And so you're trying to figure out how to pay the interest payments because you took on so much debt and you, you don't have the cash because of this whole situation. And so you have to borrow from the revolver to pay the interest on the loans. And that's a liquidity issue. So yeah, that's a liquidity issue. So, but it's not a credit issue. So, no, it's not a credit issue. So, there, um, so there are no credit quality issues in private equity, but there are some liquidity issues which might be worth 
keeping an eye on. The final thing that has attracted institutional investors to private equity is this idea of operational improvements. This is why Swenson thinks that private equity is a superior form of capitalism, because it allows us to get hands-on, to make money by making businesses better. And it was strange. Uh, I went to business school, which I, I wouldn't necessarily recommend, although it was, uh, parts of it were entertaining. Uh, and, I, and I searched out to see if I could find a class on the private equity operational improvement model. Right? I mean, to think that we've had this productivity revolution, right, where these uh, former bankers are able to take companies and improve them. Right? And I thought, well, gee, we should have some of these guys come in and teach us here at business school how to make these companies better. And yet there wasn't any class. And I started to ask, well, you know, what is the private equity operational improvement model? How do they do it? And you know, it's basically, well, you know, we're smarter than other people, and we get on the board. And, we, you know, we, and you know, the more you hear about it, the more you wonder, how could it possibly explain private equity returns? It doesn't seem any more systematic. And then some of them say, well, we hire McKinsey consultants. So your McKinsey consultant's better than the McKinsey consultants working for McKinsey. You know, the, you know how does it work? And it's sort of confusing. And so I wanted to dig even deeper. And so I pulled down uh, every private equity deal that had issued public debt as part of the transaction. There's about 390 deals uh, over the past decade. Um, and I looked at pre-acquisition and post-acquisition, what changed, right? So if you just, in aggregate, looked at revenue or EBITDA or CapEx, and, and you said, well, what changed pre- and post-acquisition, right? I figured, you know, here's where you'd see the ROE, you know, four to five, four to five private equity buys that goes up to 10, you know, and that would be explaining uh, what we're seeing with the superior form of capitalism. Um, and it was fascinating because, uh, you know, we actually saw in that study that revenue growth slowed, margins slightly improved, okay, so there was some evidence for margin improvement, but these were not big effects, they were small effects. But there was one big effect, which is that in about 80% of deals, leverage levels went up, right? So if you think of what is the private equity playbook, right, it is first and foremost an increase in debt on the balance sheet. And so if you're thinking, what is the private equity model? It's increased leverage, first and foremost, increased leverage. And if they say it's operational improvements, it's say, why does operational improvements require an increase in debt? Why do you do that with every portfolio company? Why do you do that with every deal? Why is it important? Why is it good? Uh, to which we come back to this idea of if you get multiple expansion, buying with leverage is very good. However, the more debt, the higher the bankruptcy risk. And so the positive effects of levering up a trade start to go down when your bankruptcy risk goes up too much, right? Debt is a, a double-edged sword. And a new paper from, from Josh Lerner at Harvard Business School is one of the preeminent scholars of private equity. It's a really important new paper. Uh, he said that buyout effects on employment growth are pro-cyclical. The aspect of our results suggests a PE multiplier effect uh, that accentuates cyclical swings uh, in economic activity. Um, so if you translate that from academies to English, what he is saying is that when you put debt on a business and then the economy turns south, they fire people. Uh, essentially that you have massive pro-cyclical swings that are, you know, that, right, if you look at the demise of retail, part of the demise of retail has been fueled by the retailers having so much debt coming into being able to fight Amazon. Well, gee, maybe if they hadn't had any debt, maybe they could have spent a lot of CapEx building out their online stores or doing something else to make themselves competitive. But they didn't because they were so levered. Why are they so levered? Well, it had been the, the hot thing in private equity because you could roll out more stores. And it was a very simple model. Uh, so, you know, many years ago, Paul Volcker said, you know, it's the leverage, stupid. You know, when you try to understand what drives private equity, it's all about leverage and it's all about credit quality. And we have a situation today uh, in private equity markets, uh, which is not unusual. As Jim has documented, these are recurring themes in financial markets. But today we have a situation where all of the smartest investors are in agreement, where 94% of institutional investors believe that private equity will outperform the public markets. And a full 75% predict that the next five years will be, of course, uh, better than the last five years, right? Almost complete consensus. Um, and on this point, I forgot, I had one, one other funny uh, uh, point on this return expectations, right? Which is that every person you talk to says, okay, those are the averages. If you look at the top quartile managers, right? Um, those ones do really, really well. And 
um, we have a diligence process that's oriented around choosing top quartile managers. So all well and good, Dan, that private equity hasn't done that well, but of course our portfolio is top quartile. And there's a fascinating study from the universe for the Oregon Public Employees Retirement Fund. Started investing in private equity in 1980. They were an early adopter. They're advised by Cambridge Associates and some of the other best people in the business. Been doing this for you know 30 years. Amazing track record. They did a big study of what percent of their funds had been first quartile, second, third, and fourth. And the answer is 18% first quartile, 32% second quartile, 32% third quartile, and 18% fourth quartile. So if you look at Oregon, right, one of the oldest and most uh, historic private equity portfolios, right, that's what they found. David Swenson at Yale has only outperformed the Cambridge Associates uh, private equity index by 20 bips over the past decade, right? So David Swenson can't uh, reliably pick top quartile managers. Oregon can't pick top quartile managers. Why, you know, the average firm would be able to, it's, it's hard to know. Um, but in any case, I think it's important to understand that there's nearly complete consensus among institutional allocators. Not just that their own picking top quartile, they believe the whole asset class is going to outperform. And importantly, that idea is driven, is, is correlated with an almost complete misunderstanding of the credit risk. An almost complete, so divergent as to be shocking, right? 76% of them believe that private equity is a credit quality of double B and above, even though only 2% of private equity deals have a credit quality of double B or above, right? All of this driven by the smoothing effect. And as this credit quality uh, deteriorates, and we're already seeing cracks in the levered loan market, cracks in the triple C market, um, the future for the equity that's subordinated to these levered loans, subordinated to this triple C and single B debt, is truly frightening. Uh, And yet, we are in the situation where the greatest minds in investing consider it to be their best idea uh, to put larger and larger portions of their portfolios into illiquid, highly levered microcaps subordinated to triple C and single B rated uh, levered loans uh, and junk bonds. I'm skeptical, as I'm sure you can tell, uh, that this will be a good decision. And so I challenge you to consider whether private equity is not, in fact, the greatest idea of our institutional investors, but rather uh, the greatest mistakes in their portfolio. I'd be happy to take questions. Thank you. So if things change and there's a, a rush for the door all at once, um, how big is this private private equity uh, percentage-wise, the market capital, the total market capitalization of the American market, listed market? It's 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 a small problem. I mean, it, it it's a small problem. It's a lar- it's a much larger problem for the low quality credit markets, right? That's very connected with the junk bond and levered loan markets. But it's a large part of our endowed institutions' portfolios. So if you're thinking about pension funds or college endowments, this allocation could be 20% uh, of their uh, assets for Yale. It's much higher. Cambridge Associates recently advocated that all endowed institutions take up their private equity allocation to 20 and family offices to 40% of their portfolios. So, you know, if you go from the most sophisticated investors, that's sort of the upper limit of, you know, 20% of their entire portfolios right down. It's, you know, it, it's a major uh, holding for some people, but it's, it's not big in terms of its economic, in terms of its total market cap size. But I think the other thing to consider about this is that it is big in its employment repercussions, right? A lot of these firms are a big, empl- the small companies are big swing employers. And if you're levering up those, uh, those small uh, businesses that are big employers, it a- accentuates the cyclicality of economic cycles. And it hits Main Street in a way that a lot of other things don't. Say again? Yep, it sounds about right. Is uh, not the short-termism that's plaguing the public markets where the hold periods went decades ago from decades to, to months currently, it's not that a factor enticing capital out of the public arena into private equity? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think that um, many institutional investors love the idea of being long-term 
owners. And they think that there's something about that that's more uh, conservative or reliable or trustworthy, right? If you're holding something for five or 10 years, it's almost morally good. And I think that I would say that that is plausible, it's possible, and you could do that in public markets, but why you need to do that with this much leverage um, applied to these very small companies, I think it's gonna create problems when people start to worry about these portfolios. You know, if you see one large PE fund blow up, you know, how are people gonna sell all these interests? How, you know, where's the market for that? And something that's six or seven turns levered, it's really hard to sell because public equity investors don't want that. You can't IPO a company with six times net debt. And that's the vast majority of what's in these private equity portfolios today. Have you um, done any work on the, over here, <laughs> done any work on the friction cost inside private equity once you get outside from the LP to the GP to the way that it's transmitted to both institutionals and private investors uh, and how that impacts returns? Yeah, so there are others that have done a lot more work. I think there's, a, a, there's the, the estimate of the all-in fees are about 6% per year. Now that includes carried interest. So if you you know net that out, I still think you're probably paying two to three percent just in management fees and operating you know the the portfolio monitoring fees, uh, and then of course the deal fees. Um, every time they do a deal, they take a fee to pay for uh, all the research and expenditures that went into that. So I think it's it could be as high as six. It's certainly more than two. And in an era of you know if we are in an era of low returns, which we might be, uh, certainly the risk-free rate would imply that. There's an, a, a low you know, risk rate. It's hard to know how you can pay that much in fees uh, and still come out ahead. Uh, two questions. What about companies that want to go private, avoid Reg FD, somebody like a Michael Dell, you know, get off the market, regroup? And the second one is the big thing in PE now is aggregation, right? You're taking mom and pops that can't pass on their company and, and the aggregation. Can you comment on those? Yeah. So I think we're seeing companies want to be private, want to stay private for longer. Um, and I think there's, a, if, if I owned a company, I'd rather sell it in the private markets than in the public markets today. I mean, I think you look at something like WeWork, would you rather that the private markets six months ago were evaluating the value of WeWork or the public markets, right? I mean, uh, public markets are, are very cynical and skeptical, uh, and there are a lot of eyes that go on something when you put in an S1. Uh, and I think that uh, the valuations are simply better uh, today in private markets. You're seeing that on the venture and growth side. You're seeing that in LBO land. It's, it's certainly true that it is probably preferable for you as an owner-operator to sell to private equity. Um, in terms of the roll-up strategy, um, this is one of the things that's gained the most popularity of late. Um, and I think there are a few things going on. I'd say, um, uh, first, uh, I think the argument would be, okay, we're going to buy this you know, chain of dentists for 12 times EBITDA. And we know, you know, we know it's dentists. You know, they're not worth 12 times EBITDA. But the minute we own it, it's, it, it's, we, we're turning it into a platform, and we're going to buy... 500 other dentists at three times EBITDA, and then we're going to sell it to another private equity firm at 15 times EBITDA, and it is going to work like magic. And I think it has worked like magic in a number of cases. And I think it's one more manifestation of the perversions of cheap debt, right? If you can just buy growth, as long as you can flip that growth to someone else uh, at a little higher multiple, it's worth doing. But I think the large-scale academic evidence on M&A suggests that M&A tends to be value destructive, not, not the other way around. You know, why are people selling? How optimistic do you get during the purchase process? What are the imagined synergies that you price in, and how often are those realized? Uh, the net effect of all that is generally negative, but it's certainly been one of the you know, go-to strategies of private equity firms to trying to make the argument that the crazy prices they're paying are not actually what investors are realizing because of these roll-ups. Dan, thank you. Just thank terrific. You. Yeah. <laughs> Bravo. Yeah. 
Thank you, Dan. We uh, we definitely appreciate you uh, allowing us to uh, share your remarks with our with our listeners. Um, we will be back uh, in short order with uh, with more current yield, and uh, we'll see you next time. <laughs>